Hello and welcome to this week's Renwick Centre podcast. My name's Trudy Smith. I'm the manager of continuing professional education at the RIDBC Renwick Centre. This week we're talking to Lil Beverell. I'm really looking forward to this topic. Lil, for our audience, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi Trudy. I'm an orientation and mobility uh, specialist. I'm in my early 50s, so I, I trained nearly 30 years ago. Um, I've worked in lots of different aspects of the orientation and mobility industry, starting with uh, a general caseload when I began. I gradually uh, I did some training to work with clients who have acquired brain injury. I became interested in kids with multiple disabilities and gradually over time sort of became a person with a whole lot of questions that I went to other people to get answered, to being a person who other people came to to ask questions so that that was quite nice um i'm a mum i've got two grown-up daughters who have now launched so i'm navigating the weird space of it the empty nest i love gardening and getting dirt under my fingernails and i'm loving covid because i get to wear the same clothes a few days in a row and do all that (laughs) feral scudgy stuff that suits you know (laughs) having dirt under your fingernails and uh and really enjoy people. So I love being in an industry where I get to engage with clients, with colleagues, to talk about stuff that matters in life. Great. And that's one of the things that I really want to talk to you about today, and um, particularly um, some of your PhD research. around. And as, as someone who people now go to for questions, I'm the next one who's asking me the question. And so can you talk to us about functional vision? What do we actually mean by functional vision? It's a sidekick, I suppose, or the thing that comes before it is clinical vision. So we're pretty familiar with nicking off to the optometrist or the ophthalmologist to get our vision measured, visual acuity, visual fields, contrast sensitivity, colour, those sorts of things. And we're used to the medical profession being able to do something about what gets diagnosed in the clinic. Glasses might help contact lenses, surgery, drops, those sorts of things. And when a person uh, leaves the optometrist or the ophthalmologist with the message, there is no more I can do for you, that's when the orientation and mobility specialist kicks in and starts to talk about low vision or no vision and what are the strategies that you use to navigate the world with, with little or no vision. So when we're talking about functional vision, we're talking about vision that changes, that fluctuates uh, according to different lighting, fatigue, conditions out in the community in everyday life. So that it's the vision that you have access during activities of daily living. And it's not a stable thing. For those of us who don't have low vision, who have full vision, it can change from day to day. And I became really aware of this, I think, first when I was... uh, employed at Guide Dogs Victoria, trying to exit the driveway out onto Chandler Highway. There's this little holding zone in the middle and I was from little old Tasmania coming to Melbourne and I learned to scream across the first lane of traffic, slam the brakes on in the middle, wait for the gap on the other side and then enter the other stream of traffic. And I became very aware that it was hard to use my peripheral vision at the end of the day when I was really tired and there were some days I just had to wait for a big gap both ways. 
it wasn't safe for me to do the half a half at a time thing because I wasn't thinking sharply enough and therefore my peripheral vision actually reduced to a functional tunnel vision. Sure, interesting. And so traditionally, how would you measure somebody's functional vision and do you have to do it multiple times in the day, as you say? Measurement, if we think about measurement as putting numbers on things, then we haven't actually had good ways to measure functional vision. So when you look at the functional vision assessment textbooks, they uh, suggest a whole lot of really practical strategies to explore the different aspects of vision in everyday situations, but it's very different to put num different thing to put numbers on those things. So we haven't had a functional vision assessment equivalent of a Snellen rating. Or explain a Snellen rating for those of us. Well, if, if you've got six over 60 vision, which is the benchmark for legal blindness, it means that you need to come up to six metres to see what a person with full vision can see at 60 metres. So we haven't had a number way of explaining what functional vision is like. And there are really good reasons for that. It's complex, it changes, it fluctuates from day to day and mood to mood. And the other thing about clinical vision assessment is that the assessment conditions are standardised. And this was actually one of the joyful discoveries of my PhD thesis, is putting some language around what is meant by clinical and what is meant by functional. So standardisation is really important when you're trying to measure things, but there are things that you can standardise in clinical assessment that you can't standardise in functional assessment or else you don't get meaningful data. In a clinic, you can standardise the tasks and the instructions and the venues. So that six, six over 60 Snellen measure is done at a three metre distance or a six metre distance and mathematically, you know, calculated. There's absolutely no way that I can go and standardise and get meaningful data in a, a travel environment for a child with no words, who's in a wheelchair with multiple disabilities, who's cared for by other people and might be learning to roll over independently versus someone who travels independently for work to different suburbs and internationally for holidays. Yep. No, you're just not comparing the same things. So my challenge in my PhD was to work out how to put meaningful numbers on aspects of functional vision and mobility that matter to clients, not to me, but to clients, and to do that in a way that could work anywhere in the world so that we didn't have to create this artificial environment for measuring you know, a kind of a contrived environment that, that really just sets people up to be performing monkeys and doesn't produce meaningful data. Sure. So I understand um, that the tools that you use with the Vroom, V-R-O-O-M and the OMO tools. Yep. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what they are? I love a tacky acronym, Trudy. <laughs> I just Only love it. All, let's be honest. Yeah. So Vroom, you know, that sounded good, but it actually would be a better acronym for orientation and mobility, um, you know. Just moving because, around. Yeah, moving around. But VROOM stands for Vision Related Outcomes in Orientation and Mobility. 
the point being that when we're thinking about functional vision, I learned during my PhD that an ophthalmologist or an optometrist or even an orthoptist thinks very differently about functional vision in a clin clinical environment than a teacher or an OT in a classroom, a bit more room to move, a bit more versatility of activities. And that's different again to the functional vision that an orientation and mobility specialist is interested in. And it's all about the body. So in the clinic, the O-doctors, as I fondly call them, <laughs> think about the neck up. How do you think about functional vision when you're just scanning and moving your head around, but your body's still? In the classroom or the kitchen where the OT might be working, we're thinking about functional vision from the waist up. So it's about um, the arms reach, what's in arms reach. It's about hand-eye coordination. It's about organising activities of daily living so that you have the stuff where you need it and you can put your hand right on what you need and how does your vision help that process. But the minute you get out of your chair or move away from the spot that you're standing on, you have to include you have to include orientation and physical positioning of your body in space and redirection and tracking how far you're going at the same time as you're doing task management. Yep. So the visual challenge increases enormously in complexity and the, the purposes for which your vision is deployed, you're having to do multiple things with it at the same time. Um, and when we're thinking about functional vision assessment, it's really helpful to think from those three directions, yeah. neck up, waist up, full body movement. And by saying that the O-doctors deal with one in the clinic, teachers and OTs deal with one in the classroom, O&M specialists deal with one in the community, is only to say that that's our starting points professionally. Mm -hmm. We all cross over into each other's space. And in doing so, we get this really full, rich understanding of what the client's able to do. And that's a good thing. So I'm not saying for a minute that uh, an optometrist should never go for a walk with a client. You know, they need to do that, but their starting point would be the clinic and then they would go and watch how the client moves in and out of their clinic and navigates the waiting room and gets in and out the front door. And similarly, an OT can be doing travel training out in the community, but might also do sitting and reading tasks and looking at task lighting in that situation. Yep, sure. Yeah. So that's... so. And the OMO tools? Uh, OMO, Orientation and Mobility Outcomes. I just needed right. to come up with an outcome measure. <laughs> now, it's my heart moment about this. I've got three and a half way, uh, three, sorry. I've got three and a half years through my PhD. I designed a lot of semi-standardised tasks that we administered and tried out with 40 people who had very low vision from various retinal problems to see whether those tasks would suit the people who were receiving the bionic eye implant. Mm -hmm. I tried out these semi-standardized tasks, knew that they created, I mean, good clinical research data, but not good functional assessment data because they did the, you know, performing monkey thing. The client was jumping 
through hoops that I designed rather than me going into their space and saying, how can I measure your functional vision while you're doing the tasks that matter to you? One of the beautiful things that came out of these experiments was a generic rating scale that goes three, two, one, zero. Two is competent. Three is better than good. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a place to go that are, accounts for people whose travel skills and use of their functional vision is superb. Yep. Yep. An acknowledgement of that. Yep. Exactly. One is basic. It means you've got some skills or they work in some places, but not others. But frankly, it could benefit from training. And zero is, I politely call it beginner, but it really means I'm pulling my hair out and screaming, going, don't let that person out on their own. <laughs> They're not safe. <laughs> Oh, they've got no vision. They've got no skills. Yeah, literally not really begun yet. Yeah. And in creating this scale, my goal was to get the least number of numbers to reduce decision making, mm -hmm. yeah. but still account for all potential yeah, um, manifestations of performance and the importance of having a generic rating scale, scale and putting language around that is to avoid drift when rating so mm -hmm. when you've got a Likert scale of one to ten is seven always seven or if you've had breakfast this morning does seven become eight because you're feeling good yeah, sure. so by putting what's called um, behavioural anchors or performance indicators on this generic rating scale and saying that two is competent, it's perfectly okay, three is elite, two is, uh, one is basic, zero is, is beginner, that becomes um, a, an anchor point for any more precise performance indicators that you might put on that generic scale in relation to a particular construct that you're measuring. So I found that those descriptions, that rating scale worked really well for the constructs that I was assessing in orientation and mobility. And what I had to do was discover how to do a functional vision version of that scale. And it came down to Realising that sensory integration is perfectly normal and that's what is competent. Sure. But for people with vision, two, the level of competence, means that vision's your priority and you back up your vision with other information. Yeah. Whereas when you're slipping down to one, it means that your vision is so poor or so unreliable that you use it if it's there but it's a secondary thing and other senses, be it hearing um, or touch or yep, smell, yep, yep. they're your priority. Sure. So you'd be more likely that those people would be more likely to be working on things like echolocation. Yeah, see, yeah. And it, it, the beautiful thing was that in the three participants with bionic vision, that with a retinal implant, we had one of each when it came to sensory preferencing. We had, um, and they all had light perception only. So it wasn't about their clinical vision measures. One said, oh, when I'm typing on a QWERTY keyboard, I am visualising the keyboard. And she still visualises everything. So interesting, isn't it? Yeah. One is particularly poor at sensory mapping. And so he navigates the world through touch because 
sounds and vision are not immediately accessible to him. He's got to touch things to know that they're there. So that's his sensory priority. And then the third person was using echolocation with everything. Brilliant. Just using hearing, you know, hearing dominant and anything that he got with his vision or touch just reinforced that. Yeah. So that that really speaks to spatial cognition, doesn't it? Very much so. So, did your research lead to any more understandings about spatial cognition and, and using O&M skills? Or? When I was working at Guide Dogs Victoria, I met a neuropsychologist called Ian Stewart. And anytime I had trouble understanding how a client's mind was working or how they were navigating the world, I would call on Ian and, and always try and assess um, what people were doing spatially from an on-end point of view while he was assessing their spatial cognition you know in a room with his psych tests and he developed these two beautiful tests a tactile maps test and a 3d contract a construction test um, with wooden blocks and one operates in two dimensions one operates in three dimensions but i watched him using these with clients for years and thought how hard could it be so in my PhD, I contacted Ian and said, I really want to use the mapping test. What do you think? And through my assessment tasks, discovered no correlation between people's level of vision and their performance on that spatial mapping test. Absolutely none. And a very high correlation between their results on that Stuart Tactile Maps test and a dynamic orientation task that I got them to do where they had to free explore a room and create a tactile map of the arrangement, the placement of the furniture in the room, the tables and chairs. And their mapping score on that room orientation task correlated so, you know, well with the results on the Stuart tactile maps test that I just have found that this, um, test that takes five minutes is just a brilliant screening tool for O&M clients to find out whether they can use mental mapping in navigating the world or whether we need to develop non-spatial alternatives um, for them to navigate. Sure. So, so has your research led to any changes in the field now in terms of assessment, planning programs, supporting staff? It just sounds like there's so many applications for what you found. One of the joyful things has been getting a research grant immediately post PhD for two years to look at how we could optimise technology in building people's capacity in using these functional assessment tools. And because I I got this through the uh, Swinburne University, which is a university of technology, everything has a tech overlay, but it does in our world as well. In orientation and mobility, electronic travel aids used to be a mobility aid option. Now a smartphone is standard. And so we need to um, build use of technology into the everyday things that we're doing in orientation and mobility. And I was able to work with the team at Swinburne to put, to create a, a Qualtrics survey version of the Romanomo tools so that O&M specialists could enter data with clients and I could use those to start to create categories of what the scores out of 50 for vision and the score out of 50 for mobility actually means. And I've now got some nice category descriptors that come from the client data. And that project continues. So I've got people collecting data in Australia and in the UK, and I've done some data collection in um, 
in Malaysia mm-hmm. as well. And the richness of people's descriptions about their functional vision goes together with the numbers that we're getting from Vroom and Omo yeah. to give a very different way of explaining functional vision than we've ever had before. One of the lovely outcomes. Well, I guess that, that's personalising and it's taking the medical and just making it personal, isn't it? Very much so. For example, with the functional vision assessment tool, that between zero and 50, zero is functional blindness and 50 I've called full vision. But in the 10 point categories in between at the bottom end, we've got 50 shades of grey, which is what one client said as an explanation of different levels of light perception only. In actual fact, I found that people with really like four out of 50 can still see colour. And that, wow. that's been a really interesting discovery because I thought that colour disappeared when you had that level of vision. Most of us, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, and those clients were quite rightly saying, is that my memory of colour or is that actual colour perception? And they're good questions to answer because when, uh, or, or at least to consider, they're good questions to consider because when you're thinking about functional vision, you're not stripping away all the other things that, influence visual interpretation you're looking at how the person uses their eyes in anticipation of the things they expect to see in familiar environments of the things that they're used to the sensory inputs that they're used to using to interpret what they're seeing we're not trying to look at vision only we're trying to look at how vision works with all of those other things and color is maybe something that we anticipate as well as see and i think that that this prompts us to do a little bit more digging about colour perception. Absolutely. Um, So the next category up from 50 Shades of Grey is fragments. And these are people from 11 to 20 who are seeing bits of things, but not the whole of anything. Now, interestingly, if you've got good mental mapping skills, you can locate those fragments on your mental map and you can travel at an elite level using only fragments vision. And so this explain, and I call that capacity ambient vision. You can have two clients that might have light perception only or extraordinarily low vision in the clinic. They measure the same in the clinic, but they travel so differently. Why? One is able to use their mental mapping skills together with their fragments of vision it might just be a you know a shard of light, uh, a, a glimmering reflection reflection off a shiny surface. But because of spatial mapping, you can use your light perception to know where the window is. And like the trajectory of a pool ball off the cushion, yep. you can estimate where that light's coming from, where it's going to, what the thing might be that's reflecting it. Locate that on your mental map, all as an unconscious process. This is happening continually unconsciously and that person is able to make travel decisions where with light perception only or fragments vision, they walk within an inch of an obstacle and do not hit it. Yeah, amazing. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And that person might only get 12 out of 50 on the room scale for functional vision, but they might get, you know, high 30s. They might get 38 out of 50 for their OMO or or 45 they might be really high functioning with an appropriate mobility aid or 50 because they're able to use that fragments 
with their spatial cognition to actually create this really multi-dimensional understanding yeah. of the world. And I guess by asking people these questions to personalise the medical for them, mm-hmm. it's that opportunity, isn't it, to deep dive into how people are using this, what's instinctive, what's learned, and really understand how people are using their vision. I'm finding that I'm getting really positive feedback from O&M specialists because the, I suppose the behaviour on the anchored rating scales where every number has a description gives them some professional streamlining about their practices, but it also puts language on the things that they're looking for that they can introduce to the client to have consistently meaningful conversations that really probe not just what the client can see in the moment, like, did you see that step? Are you safe going up and down that step? Which is a kind of a clunky mechanical visual perceptual thing. But part B of the Vroom tools looks at the functional implications of that and tries to put language around that as well, right through to my favourite scale, which is the visual pleasure scale. Which is back to Fifty Shades. Yeah, which is the most, it was the most entertaining one to try and put performance indicators on because when I started talking with people about visual pleasure, they started describing the things that they like to see. But I realised that's as hard as trying to standardise the context in which you're trying to measure mobility. It was more a case of looking at function and then aesthetic Mm -hmm. so the midpoint on the visual pleasure scale is really talking about is your visual vision useful and and uh in a five point scale that's you know number two but then you go up to oh it it prompts curiosity and it makes you want to have a closer look so there's that um utility of discovery but then at the top end of the visual pleasure scale is that just experience of bliss, euphoria yep. almost. So here in Sydney, it's been raining for four days. So the sunshine is giving us that feeling today. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and that's a visual thing. But for people who don't have vision, you experience as sun on your face. Mm-hmm. The thing that I have found really interesting are differences in discussing this with my mum and dad. Mum has an east-facing kitchen window and goes into a rapture over the sunset every evening. She knows what four out of four on the visual pleasure scale looks like. (laughs) She knows that level of bliss. But when I talked with my dad at 83, full vision, still driving, he couldn't relate to that. I was gobsmacked. He could relate to his vision prompting curiosity. Mm -hmm. And wanting to know more or take a second look, I thought, what's going on here? I assumed that everyone with full vision would understand what that top-end visual pleasure looks like. But when I thought about the things that my dad likes, he doesn't need to make eye contact to have a meaningful conversation. He'll look at your face and then look away, which means that recognising people's faces is not actually a priority. It's about the juiciness of the conversation. He goes to school for seniors at 83. He does presentations. He listens to radio. He analyses conversations. He loves music. He plays the piano. It's all non-visual stuff that lights him up. And it made me aware again that even with full vision, you don't have to have vision as your priority in sensory integration. Yeah. Oh, 
So interesting. Juicy stuff, isn't it? Juicy, juicy stuff. I talk to you all day and I cannot wait until your keynote at the O&M Online Symposium on the 22nd of September. But everything, I I have the sense that you are so passionate about everything that you talk about in O&M. You're going to bring that same level of enthusiasm, that thoughtful inquiry. And so we really encourage anyone that's interested in O&M to consider attending that symposium. And you can go to the OMAA website and we'll put that link in our show notes that people can learn more about that. But this has been fascinating, Lil. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Vroom and OMO tools, I've actually got a Word document that gives some concise instructions and a copy of the the two tools. They're just, each one is a a single double, is a double-sided A4 page that you can take out and use with people and assess yourself and have conversations with family members to find out how they work. And feel free to get in touch. So my website is www.lildeverell.net. And we will include both of those documents and the, the link in our show notes. So thank you again, Lil. Thanks very much, Trudy.